Greetings and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Hi, we're joined today by Associate Professor in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric and Director of Writing Across the Curriculum in the Center for Writing Excellence, both at the University of Central Florida, Dr. Lori A. Pinkert. In addition to these positions, Dr. Pinkert also coordinates an interdisciplinary fellowship writing initiative that is supported by the College of Graduate Studies. Dr. Pinkert's research aims to better understand relationships between writing and identity and to develop approaches to writing program design, development, and administration. Ongoing research includes collaboration as a co-investigator on the National Science Foundation-funded study, Institutional Transformation, Examining the Intersections of Moral Foundations and Ethical Frameworks. Most recently, Dr. Pinkert has been at the forefront of developing an AI undergraduate certificate program within the College of Arts and Humanities, in addition to coursework surrounding AI and the teaching of writing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to talk to you about all these things that are so relevant and topical and happening here at UCF. Wow. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about them and to be here with you. So thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So if we could jump right in, I think, at the start to... um, I know we are very privileged to have learned a little about this at our department meeting last week, but if you could kind of give us an overview of what this certificate program is and kind of what it means in the context of the college. Yeah. So I might start that with the context at the university a little bit and then move into the college. I had the opportunity this summer to serve on a task force that the provost put together, thinking about what the needs are surrounding AI for faculty in regards to their research and teaching, but also for students. So what is it that students are going to need to know how to do, um, need to understand, need to be able to research, et cetera, um, in order to function not only in the university, but also out in the workplaces. And as part of that proposal that the task force put together, curricular needs were certainly one of them. And so thinking about the kinds of courses that the students needed um, was at the forefront of some of those conversations, both in terms of what you need for specialized knowledge within your discipline, which I think will be handled by different disciplines in different ways based on industry expectations, um, certifications that are required within the field, disciplinary knowledge. Um, But then also, what is it that, that all students are going to need to graduate with in order to um, be what w- what I'm coming to call kind of AI literate um, in in the world, and so in bringing back that information each, each time the committee would meet uh, to our chair and the dean, I think they got really excited about the idea of a certificate, um, an undergraduate certificate program, but also about the idea that we in the arts and the humanities have a particular approach to bring to these conversations that can help us to uh, expand our understandings of the implications of these tools and technologies, to critique them, to be creative with them, to better understand them, to think about their roles in history. Um, you can imagine a range of applications. So the certificate is really meant, I think, both to be an opportunity for us to collaborate in the college and to really help individuals understand that AI isn't just for computer programmers, right? The the people who are maybe creating the next iteration of the new chatbot, um, but it really is for all of us to engage with in creative ways, critical ways, productive ways. Um, so, so I think that's at the heart of, of the reason for it. Um, I'm excited about it because we're having conversations about the ethics of these technologies and the centrality of ethical considerations, um, the literacies that are needed in order to engage with these. And so I think that's why my colleague and I were tasked with kind of heading up the collaborative effort in the college is because we see at the heart of this 
the humanities, the arts, um, and also those conversations around, again, how, how do we think about this um, and how are we going to be uh, critical and engaged users? It's interesting in that it's almost a chicken and egg situation regards to students and faculty in that a lot of us are at the same jumping off point for understanding and learning. And and we don't want to make any assumptions that one particular demographic has more experience or information than the other. And a lot of us are all on the same playing, you know, level playing field at this point. So what is that process like in terms of trying to develop um, courses that would go along with this type of certificate certificate program. Yeah, I I think we are in some ways at similar starting points, um, but I think that that also requires the acknowledgement that we're all at also different starting points. And what I mean by that is I think there are particular presumptions we make about one group or the other. So whether that's students or faculty, um, you know tech-heavy majors versus arts-heavy majors or socially-heavy majors, et cetera. Um, And so I think, you know, prodding a little bit of that to recognize that the sameness is also the same in its variants is really important. Um, And so I wanted to mention that at the outset because I think that when you're building courses, you're also thinking about, well, what are the common starting points and what can we presume and what do we need to teach? And so unpacking some of those conceptual pieces. So, for example, when it comes to if we're thinking about chatbots, right, chatbots, something like ChatGBT, can someone use that critically? You have to understand large language models. You have to understand big data and and how big data feeds into those large language models. So even if someone is like using ChatGPT, it doesn't necessarily mean they understand the behind the scenes. Um, so I think that's part of it is like recognizing the the layers and that someone may be, you know, a user of something, but not an understander of it. They understand what it does for them in the moment, but they might not understand its limitations based on how it was created. I think that's the same for faculty and for students. Um, I do think many fields are taking this up, right? And so one of the places that we've encouraged our colleagues to go to in thinking about what you know, an AI course might need to entail in their discipline is to look for that journal in your field that's engaging with AI in some critical scholarly way. And that can help you to think and explore. So I think in our field, um, Composition Studies just released a special issue that has some short pieces that really engage with some of the fundamentals and that also remind us, you know, AI is a technology among many technologies that we have encountered. So there are some fundamentals that stay the same. Um, that's the other thing I would say about this certificate is that we are thinking about it not just as AI as an instance, but also how it's set within this larger ecology. So big data is a big piece of that. So we've been throwing around sort of terms like you know artificial intelligence, big data, and the human experience as the kind of framework for what we're doing and how we do it. Because AI doesn't function without those other pieces. So just so I'm certain that I'm understanding you correctly, when you say big data, what does that mean in this context? So, well, uh, so it it means different things in that um, artificial intelligence means different things, right? Um, so we can use an instance. So we think about text generators. Uh, and I'm using text there specifically because you might have image content and that might be generated a little bit differently. But if we're thinking about text generators, I gave the example earlier of ChatGPT, but there are multiple and there are many. Um, these are built based on a large data set that provides the input that then can Uh, enable the building of the model that then enables the generation of the text, right? Um, So there's this large data set that provides the basis on which the tool is trained. And that's what I mean when we're thinking about big data. It's those large data sets behind. But they're going to look different across different AI technologies. Um, And it's not – big data is an issue that pervades beyond AI tools, too. So we see data collection about us uh, all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say as a follow-up question to what you just said, Lori, 
what are some of the, have you all talked about what are some of the challenges um, in teaching about those kinds of technologies where the technologies themselves and how they work, the people that program those and create those, they're not really sort of providing that information about like how those models are created or how those outputs are, you know, um, are created, you know, through the use of this technology, especially now since it's sort of like everyone's vying for those positions of, you know, wanting to be the one and there's lots and lots of, you know, investment money at stake and and potential, you know, profits at stake and things like that. So, you know, information about exactly what's going on with a lot of these is really hard, if not impossible, to come by. Um, Has that been something that's been part of the conversations of thinking about teaching about these technologies? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I do think there there is some uh, benefit to the, uh, you know, elements of secrecy, right, uh, to not giving away everything on the part of maybe the tool builder, we'll say. But I do think there are people who will talk to you about how they are built, and there is some information that's out there about them because – as people begin to understand the tools, they're going to want to know on what they're built, right? Um, And so I'm thinking about early iterations of some of the tools where you needed to know or or the tool would tell you, right? You needed to know what the range of the data set was in terms of dates. So how recent was it scraping whatever was on the web, right? Whatever they had collected from the World Wide Web um, to, to create the data set. Because if you ask it a question after a certain date, it couldn't answer the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I think you're right that there are issues and uh, those issues become right, doubly problematic if we're teaching people to be critical. But I think that's part of it, too, is that if there is a demand for uh, in order to use this tool, I need to know on what it's built, whose voices are there if we're talking about text generations, who, whose voices are omitted, right? Um, and also on what is it basing um, the the way that it constructs the text, right? Um, and so so I think it's a it's a both and like, yes, there are limitations to what we can say. But as we learn the limitations, we can create a culture of asking for the information that we need to be critical users. Yeah. And I think that's why, too, it's such an interesting technology to talk about in the arts and humanities, because, you know, from my understanding of it and and seeing some examples, you know, uh, of people using it in classrooms and, and hearing uh, those types of you know examples. A lot of what what I find common about you know people who use this in classrooms and for assignments and activities and stuff like that is that there's a focus on what you sort of ask it or how you ask it to produce things. You know, a, a lot of people talking about the prompts that you yeah. give it, right? Um, being crucially important in terms of how those are written how those like parameters are, you know, the things that are fed into the tool in order to get, you know, like good input in, good input out kind of, you know, basic idea. So, yeah, I think that that is, you know, central to a lot of what we, you know, talk about uh, as well in, in our fields, you know, how, how to ask it or, or how to uh, use it through, through prompts and, and, you know, giving it parameters and things like that. There's a lot to think about before you do that. I think that's why we as rhetoric scholars and writing scholars are so excited by this. It's like the first time you tried to search in the library database, especially a few years ago. It's gotten better. But when I was an undergrad, it was hours that you would spend just digitally rewording your search, thinking of new keywords. How am I going to try to get the information that I'm looking for when I don't quite know what it is, but I, I know the area? And Rhetorically, having that awareness of how do I position the subject that I want to write about in a way that is generative to the appropriate audience, to the appropriate purpose. Like, I think we as people in the College of Arts and Humanities are like, oh, yeah, this absolutely goes together. There's also the consideration that it takes people who know how to think creatively and outside the box to do that kind of problem solving. It's not something that can just be done by following steps one through three or whatever. It's that, oh, well, it's not doing this way. So let me go a different way. And then let me adjust and let me pull upon my, you know, my rhetorical toolbox or whatever to to be a better problem solver to get the kind of writing that I need, even if it's writing that I didn't generate specifically, but then I'm going to then tailor to my needs. 
it's a really interesting um, relationship between writing and technology. Like I think about all the years we've spent teaching computers to figure out like where is there a motorcycle and all these pictures and checking the boxes. You know, how often we have those little like find all the pictures that have a bridge before you can buy this thing that you're trying to do or whatever it is you're trying to do online. But there is that added element of human intelligence that without without it, artificial intelligence really can't do what it needs to do. But then we're also, it's very symbiotic in that relationship between the two. So I'm excited. How are we, if you can share this, how are we incorporating other aspects of arts and humanities into this type of work in the certificate program? Yeah, so we anticipate the certificate to have a couple of core classes that all students would take who want the certificate, but that the electives would represent all the uh, departments in the college that want to participate. So there's no mandate that everyone must do this because we really want this to be a faculty-driven, interest-driven initiative. Um, But the invitation is there. And so we had some great conversations um, with colleagues in the arts who were talking about the possibility of, you know, their own working with AI to create um, an artistic piece. And so maybe there's a chance to bring that into a course in which students are engaging with AI to create artistic pieces as well. Um, I know there's been lots of conversation in the visual arts about this, uh, especially as the visual arts in some capacities have turned digital much sooner than other areas. And so they've been having these conversations about digital art for a long time. And this is, I think, reviving some of those conversations. Um, I think there are already faculty who are doing this work. So colleagues in history, for example, that have been centering this in some of their courses already. And so those courses would become part of the certificate. So I think it's possible for a student to come into the certificate and, you know, reinforce it with uh, courses from their field if they happen to be in the arts and humanities or to end up with four courses across four different departments to comprise their certificate. But that would help them to think, as you said, about about that human experience, whether it's the human experience of the tools and technologies, the human experiences you can create with the tools and technologies, um, or even the human experiences sort of a- as a result of these tools and technologies? How does it change our experiences in the world? So that remind, I think that was something that we had briefly discussed at the at our department meeting recently, which was maybe thinking about which courses might yeah. have a, you know, I guess it would be like a designation to it where mm-hmm. they would, you know, qualify for part of the certificate. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. So I think there will be a threshold that courses would need to meet in order to be part of the certificate. So it doesn't mean every course where someone might be using a text generator for a course assignment is going to fit the certificate, but that it actually centers AI, big data, these these notions um, as part of the course. So in DWR, for example, I think we do have some courses that are that are ripe. Um, I don't know yet which courses the department will put forward, um, but things like writing in digital environments seems really ripe for conversations about artificial intelligence, about big data, um, things like literacy and technology seem really ripe for that conversation as well. So I think there will be courses in existence that folks want to you know, put up as potential electives in the certificate. It might also be the case that there's a new course that a department is eager to develop, and this would give them a space for potential audience for that, um, either within their own, you know, students or across the college, across the university. Because uh, even though it would be housed in arts and humanities, we know this, our students take certificates all over. Um, and so it's a chance that students could take that certificate as well. Um, I do think there's a possibility coming, you know, down and in the future. Um, other institutions uh, have developed like an AI designation for courses that's at the university level. 
Um, and so places like UF have that kind of a designation where they're measuring the numbers of courses that are engaging, again, meaningfully with AI content in the same way we have research intensive or service learning or global. Um, so those kinds of things that could be coming and it positions Ka well um, to have some courses that are already demonstrating those um, content areas. I don't know if you have an answer to this, so I apologize. Um, I know that you mentioned to us the other day that University of Florida and there's, was it FIU, that is currently doing work with AI in terms of actual course certificates, that type of thing. And it seems, you know, timely, of course, we at the forefront are getting why this is important or significant. Was there something else that was kind of driving UCF to make progress in this direction? I know the pro you were involved in that provost call to action kind of a thing, and I was, was curious if there was any information as to where that was stemming from. Yeah, good question. Um, I, I really do think maybe two part to answer your question. One is, I, I think our provost sees this truly and honestly as a really exciting time. I think he sees the potential and is excited for faculty and students to harness it. Um, I think he put together the task force because he said, I don't know how we do that. I know that we need to do it. Um, and so I really think part of this is the provost having put that together, having put those, um, again, there were maybe 15 of us from across the university that were meeting this summer to develop this. Um, so, so I think it comes from that. And then I think the other piece of this is, uh, you know, it, the attention toward AI and, and maybe the certificate program. I mean, it stems from, I think, this larger conversation about what does higher ed look like moving into the future. And I think for some faculty, maybe for some students, and maybe for some public entities as well, questions about what can be generated by the machine, if you will, um, are really unsettling because they disrupt notions of well, what's the point of higher education, or, or maybe they push at, right, that question that was already there. Um, and I think we aren't asking that question, but I do think there are folks asking those questions. And so I think the need for response comes from that larger landscape about how, how do we rethink what higher education looks like? If so, how do we do that? What do we need to do to respond? So I think the need for respond comes maybe from those two places. Yeah, I think, you know, from what I've read about it and heard about it, you know, at the, for example, like the AI conference that was at UCF recently, the mm -hmm. keynote speaker is just, you know, a, a lot of the point of all of that is this is happening and this will significantly change, you know, higher education. So, you know, those two things are are a sure thing, right? So, and then the only other thing is how will you respond or, right. or how will institutions sort of respond to that? And so, you know, I think, you know, one way is to be active and the other way is to kind of see what happens. But I think obviously the see what happens, you, you don't really have that control. And I think so, you know, things that I, that I think that I see happening at UCF, you know, make me think, oh, okay, you know, we at UCF are... are not trying to sort of necessarily get ahead of it because it's kind of already happening. It's it's sort of like we need to define like how how this is going to uh, change us and how we're going to incorporate this into what we do. Um, otherwise, you know, those things just kind of end up happening to, you know, to change things and you don't have as much control over that, I think. So I think that is, I think, part of the, the the sort of motivation here that's happening. And I was curious, Lori, um, you know, obviously you have more experience in talking about this in the context of Cobb, but have there been like conversations or, or things that you have been aware of that, you know, UCF sort of at large is, is doing in this direction? Are other departments or colleges doing similar things? Or uh, I'm curious because we're such a big, big institution that, you know, we a lot of times don't know what's happening in other colleges and other parts of the university, but I'm sure this is one of those things that that is not, you know, just in one college. It's going to be everywhere. So I'm curious, like, 
Is there crosstalk between colleges across the university that, that you know of? Yeah, so there are two forums uh, for crosstalk that I know has been happening since last year. And one of those is just an informal um, AI discussion group that's been happening across varied stakeholders, so faculty, staff across the institution. Um, that's been happening since at least last spring. Um, and I, I think that's, again, a very informal conversational group. We get together maybe once a month. And the goal for that is really information sharing. So what new AI technologies are out? What new tools are you seeing? What new legislation is coming out? What new issues are we seeing? Those kinds of things. Um, and then some crosstalk about different events. So when UCF was hosting um, CDL and FCTL, uh, the Center for Distributed Learning and our Faculty Center for Teaching and Learning just hosted um, an AI and teaching conference. And so when that was in development, it enabled that group to provide some feedback, but also to circulate and share. So that's one. Um, and then that provost task force, as I said, it was uh, folks across the university. So from the chair of computer science, right, who's working with her faculty to develop tools to learning sciences who are thinking about how this is working in K through 12 schools to the College of Medicine, where they're thinking about how this is getting used in medicine, but also how it can help them in their teaching and thinking about development. Um, I think that has raised those kinds of conversations have raised a lot of other issues. Um, related to capacity for uh, faculty to do the kinds of work that they might want to do or could do with these tools, which brings in that other piece of the puzzle, right, in terms of sort of IT and infrastructure that's needed. Um, I think for me, I'm always at the table thinking as well about privacy issues. So when we talk about faculty asking students to use it, do they have choices about whether or not they're putting their personal writing into um, a, a, a chatbot? Um, do they want it to be there? Do they know what happens to it once they put it there? And I think this gets back to your comment earlier about you know, the, the commerce involved in all of this. So there are companies all too ready, we know this uh, from other tools, uh, but there are companies all too ready to accept our students' academic work and then sell it back to us in the term of plagiarism detectors and, and things like this. So they're making money off the intellectual work that our students are doing, putting forward. And so I think there's also that conversation happening about the ethics of compelled use. Um, and I think that's where I see uh, conversations as well in journals and in um, funding agencies. So this is something I've been following because I think, as Megan noted at the beginning, I work with an interdisciplinary fellowship writing initiative. And so these students, during the course of their time at UCF, are applying for national research fellowships. And so they've got to understand what are the expectations of the NSF, the National Science Foundation, the NIH, right, the National Institutes for Health. They've got to understand their uh, granting and funding guidelines. And so I've been following what are these agencies saying about use or non-use of AI technologies. And there really is, I, th I think there are two categories into which this splits. So one is what are their expectations for writers? So can you use it to generate your piece? And then two is could it help you to review a piece, right? Because peer review involves the review. Um, and so there are a number, and we won't get into all the ins and outs here, right? But there are a number that say, you know what? If you want to use it to generate your content, you have to take responsibility for that. And we know it's it's not designed to be um, a generator of true content, right? It's designed to answer the question that you asked it. As you said, prompt engineering is really crucial. So it will answer a question. So you need to take responsibility for the output. Uh, and you all have probably seen in the news all of the maybe faux pas with output that was presented as true. So there's that piece. But then a number of publications and agencies are saying, but you should not be using it to review others' work, right? Um, and there are a number of reasons. I couldn't send someone's manuscript. If I'm reviewing for a journal, I can't send their manuscript to you to look at, right? So if I don't know what's happening to it when I put it into this 
chatbot, you know, I put it into this machine, um, that seems problematic, right? It also, to me, presents issues of did the author intend for it to be put there? Are you compromising intellectual property? Um, those kinds of things. So so I think there are, there's a lot at issue, and that comes up when you get in that interdisciplinary conversation with those folks across campus. And those are some of the things that I would bring to the table because the conversation was about, well, this can maybe this can help me grade my students' work faster, right? Don't they want responses faster? And so, you know, the question is, well, maybe they do. I think they do, right? I, I get that Asking too. for a friend, can can that work? <laughs> <laughs> um, I will say I work with a lot of faculty across campus who are testing it out for its range of uses in teaching. Um, it can provide feedback to a, a sample of writing that's placed in there, and you can prompt it to comment on X or Y. Um, and so you could do that. Um, wow. Should is the question. Right. Maybe that I'm not going to answer for you today here. Uh, but could you? Yes, it could provide responses. When I was reviewing some of your research, um, I was looking at the piece that you co-authored with um, another one of our previous guests, Blake Scott, about um, I don't I want to make sure I quote this properly. It's techne, but there was a specific. It's not interdisciplinary. It was transdisciplinary. Transdisciplinary techne. Yeah. Um, before I jump into my question, though, just can you briefly explain what techne is for those of us that aren't on the bandwagon, the techne bandwagon? Yeah. yeah so techne comes from the Greek. So we're going back to those conversations early on about sort of what rhetoric was or could could be, right? And so techne has to do with a sense of um, do you perceive rhetoric to be, you know, a, 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 at its base, we'll say, right? Um, this knack that some people have or don't have, or is it a techne? Is it a craft that can be honed and developed? And yes, you know, I, I often think about it when I'm teaching, like, yes, we might have different starting points, um, but but is it a craft that can be honed and developed as well? You know, are there truly sort of principles on which it can work? Also, isn't, correct me if I'm wrong, is there a little bit of sometimes there's just like a natural tendency towards a certain type of like skill set that even though you could start with three people and teach them the same thing, one of them might just do a little better at it just naturally based on like their variety of past experiences, almost like a mini slumdog millionaire moment where like all these things have happened in their lives to make them able to do it differently than other people. Am I correct that that's a, like a portion of technique? Yeah, so, well? so I think that's working in that same sphere, right? Because uh, there is that what contributes to the making of the, the moment as well, right? Mm -hmm. And that moment has a lot of pieces. And so I think we often think about that with the notion of kairos, right? So is it the right timing, the opportune moment. Um, but I think you're right that it does have to do with sort of that that ability and then that ability to be honed. I bring it up because one of your other research interests is writerly identity. And so when I was in looking at all these research aspects and then pairing that with the idea of AI and the understanding of AI, it really raises some interesting questions. And I was curious if you have thoughts on what that means in terms of writerly identity and techne and all of those things together. That's a big question. It is. We can go a little long. It's fine. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> no. No, I, um, I will give a specific, for instance, and then maybe work my way out to some generalizations because I don't know the answer to how it ties all of these pieces together yet. Um, there are a couple of things that I come back to in that. Um, the work that we do, and, and I think this speaks to that article that Blake and I were developing, right? The work that we do as writers, as rhetoricians, is never just uh, in that moment. And, and because you can't be in that moment. And what I mean by that is um, I am projecting a kind of self into the world, right, in this moment. 
I am projecting a kind of audience on the other end as well. Um, I am also reflecting on conversations that I've had before. So that's one of the things that I think Blake and I were wrestling with is how how do we articulate that? Right, that ability to be both projective and reflective and also generative, right? You are creating a moment in and of itself. Um, and so I think that some of those things hold true, whatever technologies are being used to compose. Um, it is not the singular word that matters it's that meaning that's created and shared among the group that I'm trying to communicate to and so I don't uh, on the one hand I don't think that changes with new tools I think there are a lot of questions to ask um, about what is being presented as being human um, and so a lot of the uh, content generators and content detectors, which we haven't talked about in this conversation here, um, but they project certain kinds of language as human. And they may even give you a report that says this is 100% human generated or 100% AI generated. And they're basing that on some really particular structures that may or may not be human. Um, I think this relates back to your earlier conversation about going through the library database, right? There's a, there's a sense in which uh, there's potential bifurcation between what I do to communicate to humans and what I do to communicate to the content generator. And so I'm wrestling with that because I think there are really problematic things being said about, you know, what it means to be a human, what it means to be a writer. One of the one of the first things I did in responding to these AI tools was to change my language. I stopped talking. When I first started talking about these tools, I talked about what they put out as writing, and I've stopped doing that, right? Because I want to talk about writing as that embodied experience, that process of reflecting, of coming up with the right thing for the right time, right? So I'm going to talk about what they produce as content, or I'm going to talk about what they produce as text. Um, and I'm still anthropomorphizing, right, the, the tool itself. But uh, I'm going to talk about it in that way as a, as a conscious choice um, because I'm trying to save that place for what writing is and does and, and what it always did for me. I think that was a fair answer and not too long. Okay. <laughs> it, is, it is a lot to consider, though. There are so many ethical um, and I'm trying to think of the right word um, – like human considerations to this and what does it mean for us as humans? And yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that, that your, your explanation, Lori, which I thought was great, really kind of points out is that that's the thing that's missing from the text or the context or, or the, the text or the content that is put out by a tool. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's responding to you know uh, a prompt plus all its you know past sort of like uh, abilities of dealing with prompts too, um, but it doesn't have you know um, the sense of you know as you described it like a particular moment that that text or content will live in because it it is not aware of that you know what I mean. Um, it is aware of like responding to a prompt and, and putting something out. But again, you know, the everything surrounding it, you know, ecology, situation, all those things that that we talk about or whatever, um, all of that stuff is is missing. And it's and that that's what comes from, you know, as you put it, like the writer um, who's who's putting it all together um, and, and sort of is aware of what those sort of multiple things are that are all happening at the same time. So, yeah, I don't think, you know, while it now is another sort of factor and, and wrinkle to consider in there, um, I, I think what it's not is is something that can sort of understand that context. And so, you know, you, you spoke earlier about knowing and talking about what, what these things can do and what yeah. they can't do. You know, I think that's, you know, and you talking about, writerly identity and all the things that kind of go into that 
I think that's an important like way in, in, in which to talk about some of the things that, that they are not doing or, or can't do. Yeah, I, I was giving a writing across the curriculum workshop a couple weeks ago with faculty from all fields. And one of the faculty members, and I don't remember what field he was in, but he said, you know, just because you can cook instant rice doesn't make you a chef, right? And so that kind of thing, like just because you can generate text doesn't make you a writer, right? Um, and I think that's the distinction, as I said, that I'm trying to make in, in maintaining that sort of writer position for those individuals who are who are doing that. Yeah, we're we are more than just teaching the computer to identify the bridge in the photograph. We're not just proofreaders of chatbot generated text or artificial generated text. Like there is that aspect of the human identity that still needs to be a part of it. Otherwise, I think I don't know, I think we're going to see as we move forward there is the argument. Will we will we be able to tell as 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 we consume these things? Can we tell the difference between what is completely generated and what is human oriented is that question for me (laughs) it's just a statement it's more of a statement yeah uh well and and i guess the question i would ask on uh on top of that underneath that beside it beside it around it um is uh, does it matter and if so when right because there are things that matter to me who generated them with what knowledge under what conditions. And there are things maybe that don't, right? Um, That's an age-old question because we have been reading things written by people who are problematic as individuals but generate works of mm -hmm. art that are timeless and crafted in a way that resonate with a lot of human experience. And there's that separate, like, you know, don't read things biographically. You have to remove the author from the text. So does that does that still continue forward in that case? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think you know my area always goes to expertise, right? Do I does I, I think yours gives us a sense of like you know sort of that artistic piece, but I wonder too like whose advice am I going to follow based on the expertise that that individual has? And and what are the risk factors of following or not following something in relationship to that expertise? And so I think that's where the question sort of bubbles for me, um, because there are some things that I, I do think it matters who generated that text. And, and to your point earlier, Nick, about sort of what gets generated, it's not even that the machine, insert whatever chatbot we're using, would generate the same thing every time, right? And so I think that's a that's a sort of misconception that people have is that it's made to give an answer, right? It's, it's made to replicate a human-like conversation, but most of these, right, natural language processing tools they're designed to construct the next likely word based on the data set that they have. So it's not, like you said, it's not like they're thinking through, well, what is the right answer to this based on particular considerations? But it's what's the logic, not even logical. What is the statistically likely response to this question based on the data set I have? And now I say that and provide a caveat because there is some human training in there too, right? It's not that they are constructed fully uh, automatedly and there are no humans in there vetting that content. Um, But I I can't count the number of people who have told me they've asked a chatbot to write their biography and it outputs a whole bunch of things that they didn't do um, or tells that they've died already and they're very sad that they missed their own passing, right? <laughs> um, so are there all of these examples that it's not, it's not intended to give you a right answer. It's intended to give you a statistically likely answer um, and not that that answer will be wrong, but I think you have to hold that in consideration. Well, how often do we argue with Google Maps <laughs> that it's, that's not the turn I want right, to take right. or we're dubious that that's the shortest way to get there because, you know, we, we know better. Yeah. 
uh, or, you know, unfortunately turned into a lake or something. <laughs> it said turn right. Yeah. And I wasn't going to argue. Um, you mentioned writing across the curriculum. And I'm curious if uh, first maybe like what trajectory you see writing across the curriculum on now and if there is any room for modification based on these considerations of these conversations with other colleges and, and the, the work we've, we're doing that we're talking about today. Yeah. So um, writing across the curriculum has a long history at UCF of a focus on really helping faculty who either are teaching writing intensive courses or who want to integrate writing into their classes um, to do that in a way that's pedagogically sound and research based. Uh, and so there are a number of faculty across our campus who've been trained through the WAC Fellows Program. Um, but it has also been a place for the development of research projects and for other kinds of consulting, sort of whether that's on an individual scale or a department-wide scale. So we started last spring uh, what we call WAC Wednesdays. And uh, for one month in the spring, we spent every Wednesday together um, and talked about issues of AI. Um, no homework for faculty, but just to come. We had some content prepped, but a chance for them to talk it through. We'll do the same thing again um, this fall. It'll be, I, I think, our three um, sessions in November before the holiday that we have. Um, and so we'll be, again, talking about AI-related pedagogical um, techniques, tools, things we should know, et cetera. Um, so there's that piece of it where I think we'll focus on this as an emerging issue. We ran some um, workshops before the semester to help folks think about how they were going to frame their expectations around AI in their syllabi. Um, so really trying to communicate that clearly to students. I think both of those kinds of activities are really based on best practices in writing studies anyway. Um, and so that piece of our work doesn't change because of a new technology. So to our conversation earlier about like, is this changing everything? Like, yes and no, right? There are some fundamental things that remain the same. Um, and so our WAC Fellows program will be recruiting um, for folks to join that again. And that will continue to engage the basic principles that it always had. But AI will be one of the tools and technologies that we consider. Um, and then we are working on some research coming out of the WAC Research Lab um, to, to help us understand where faculty are in their own use and their own knowledge and then where we need to go in terms of supporting their needs related to the teaching of writing. How are, um, first, I'm just curious, like, what are some of the fields that um, some of the WAC fellow uh, teachers are, are from across the university? And um, do you have some examples of, you know, the types of um, maybe projects that they create through the WAC program or integrate into their courses? Yeah. So um, I, the faculty have come from a range of different fields. So you could think about a hard science like chemistry to um, uh, either a social science or humanities, depending on what kind of research you do, like history. Um, and both of those areas have had faculty cohorts who've come together to innovate some of their expectations across courses. So Faculty often will tackle a question or a problem um, that they're seeing that isn't just a singular course, but that is made maybe a requirement for students going through that program so that it's something that can transfer across their different courses. Um, and then the projects that they do, I, I mean, in some ways, they really depend on the specific discipline, what course it is, what level it is, because the kinds of things you're doing with writing at an introductory level, so what we might consider truly sort of writing to learn, so using writing as a learning tool versus what you might be doing at the advanced level, maybe a capstone course in a discipline, which might be much more like writing to communicate you know, to an expert audience in that field, um, you know, those are going to be very different kinds of assignments you might be tailoring. But but often the faculty will focus on that. But but we take a holistic approach to it. So we're thinking 
you know, reverse design, right? Backwards design. So we're thinking about what are the outcomes for this course? Where does writing fit in those outcomes? What, you know, what outcomes does it directly contribute to? And what outcomes could it help you meet if you were using it to meet that? And then we work on engineering the assignments. A lot of the work is also on assignment design and really thinking about, I think, the hidden aspects of assignments that faculty expect but maybe don't know how to communicate to students. Um, and so I think about the examples, you know, of, of assignments where I've asked faculty, well, you know, under what conditions would someone write this kind of a thing in your field? Uh, and so articulating, oh, so this is the kind of correspondence you would have with an editor or, or something like that. Let's tell that to students. Imagine you're writing to an editor. Right. And so really peeling back some of those uh, sort of hidden audience expectations and things like that. So not to steal my co-host's line, I think we're kind of winding up on our time together. Um, now, we know this about you because we're lucky enough to work with you, but you're involved in a lot of different endeavors in terms of interest, like just calling to mind there was the the truth-telling project that you were involved with um, bringing to UCF and you know integrating into our coursework you were involved with the rhetorics of storytelling and quilting last year are there any other projects on the horizon that are not necessarily AI specific that you're excited about or working on I, I, hes I hesitate to <laughs> share this because it's not out there yet it's just us yeah just kidding. um <laughs> So here's what I'll say. If it doesn't happen this year, by next year. Um, so I'm working with a colleague in education right now um, to develop some programming around write-out. Do you all know write-out? It's a collaboration between the National Writing Project and the National Park Service. Mm. And they encourage folks to get outdoors for two weeks in October and do their writing outside. So we're trying to work with the Arboretum to get some writing events where maybe you could take your writing classes out to the Arboretum um, or for faculty who want to work on projects of their own, whatever it is you're writing, um, to bring it out and get outdoors. So that's something, again, by next year for sure, and I'll keep you posted if it happens. Oh, yeah. yeah. And doesn't that coordinate also with National Day on Writing? It does. Okay. It overlaps. Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, Write Out overlaps the National Day on Writing. So we will continue our National Day on Writing events October 20th for those who are looking for the writing stations on campus. We'll have those out and about and I'm excited. We've got some new partners this year so you'll see some tables in new places. Um, and then yes, it overlaps. Uh, write Out is a longer time frame that kind of I think it's about two weeks. Um, and, and if you haven't checked it out before, they have prompts built already for write-out. So they encourage you to write in different ways. And I think the focus this year for write-out is actually on poetry. Oh, so, that's cool. Yeah. Now, will they have um, some kind of station set up outside for chat GPT so that can be used? It's a great question. <laughs> I got to see. Maybe our colleagues in computer science or someone want to host that table. We'll see. Based on the environment you see outside, generate a poem. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. You can't do that, can you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not funny, Dave. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us today yeah. and sharing your enthusiasm. It's always exciting to talk about uh, these aspects of writing that are beyond the classroom and in the classroom. And, you know, it's why we love what we do. So thank you so much for sharing your passion today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thanks for being here. And thanks for listening, everybody.